Welcome. Have a seat. Have a seat. Come on, you extroverts. Sit down. Leave those poor, normal people alone. Thank you. It's great to see and hear so much energy in the room. Uh, we are, if, uh, I'll just give you a quick context. If you are new here, we are doing a short uh, kind of vision series on one of our major values, which is prayer. We're in our second week. And uh, so this week, last week, we talked about the centrality of prayer. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm fighting a bug, been fighting it all week. Uh, uh, but this week, we're talking about the purpose of prayer. So if you pull out the uh, back panel of your bulletin, you will see a long list, actually the whole of Ephesians 1 printed here. We will not read the whole thing, but we will refer to parts, the first uh, 14 verses as part of our discussion reflection on verses 15 onwards, but we will focus our reflection on verses 15 and onwards. And so to help us with that and the reading of God's word, Howard. Reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter one, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in your, my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the centrality of prayer, and we said that prayer is central because God is central. God is the fundamental presupposition of all reality. God is, God always was, God always will be. God is central. Secondly, because God's kingdom is not fully here, it is incomplete and therefore, we need to depend upon God and lean on God to keep bringing it in. And finally, because life is hard and broken. And so today, building upon last week's discussion, we are not discussing the centrality, but this week we're discussing the purpose of prayer. Now, most people have no idea what the purpose of prayer is in our culture. Just this week, I counted about seven or eight times when I heard commentators talk about some tragedy, someone dying, the hurricane, whatever, and they said, our thoughts and prayers go out to those affected. You hear that all the time, don't you? It's just part of the cultural language of our culture. It's kind of, what is it? Is it a vague expression of well-wishing? Is it like what I saw on social media where, hey, let's send good vibes their way? What's that mean? You see, I think when faced with tragedy, the idea of saying something comes to our lips, but I don't think we've thought through what we mean by what we say. Because if the universe is indeed a, an impersonal accident of time and chance, then who's listening when we pray? Who's directing our vibes when we send them out? And the answer is, nobody is. But the gospel 
tells of a very different reality because the gospel reveals a profoundly personal universe created by an infinitely personal God for personal relationship. God is central to the universe and he who is central and by whom all things are held together gives us prayer for a reason, that we may know him, that we may have communion with him. That is the purpose of prayer. Here in the verses that Howard read, you will see this particular thing because Paul prays for them and the content of his prayer for them gets picked up in verse 17, that the God of our Lord, it's your last paragraph, major paragraph, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you, here it is, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here, Paul says, I want your spiritual eyes opened that you may see and commune with the God who is. We were made by God for God. As a central reality of life, he is the one we are to know. That's what prayer is. It's talking with, it's communing with God. But Paul goes on here and gives us three implications, three results, three truths about what it means to know God, three things that prayer catalyzes as we commune with God, and they are this. When you pray, you enter into God's world, and you are given a hope that cannot be shaken. You are given a love that cannot be imagined, and you are given a power that cannot be stopped. A hope that cannot be shaken, a love that cannot be imagined, and a power that cannot be stopped. These are three characteristics of communion with God and what it does for us. And this is what prayer enters you into. Let's look at two of these three. We'll look at the third one next week. Firstly, the hope that cannot be shaken. And secondly, the love that cannot be imagined. Keeping reading where we were, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now that's brief. <laughs> know the hope to which he's called you. That's all he says. But if you read the New Testament and the gospel, in those few words are an explosive world of meaning. And before we look at that world, we need to ask, what alternative do we find in our culture? What hope does our culture offer us? I keep asking people, tell me, our secular narrative is that we were created by the accident of time and chance. The universe is impersonal. This life is all there is. So what hope does it give? And the silence you hear now is the silence I hear every time I ask it because it doesn't give a hope. It gives a frantic scrambling because our narrative right now is that this life is all there is. So in this life, all justice must be found. In this life, all bucket lists must be checked off. And it is in those two worlds that a frantic restlessness has arisen that defines our culture. Scrambling like mad to get social justice done now and scrambling like mad to get my personal bucket list checked off now. 
But here's what I want you to think about. What if we got all of our goals and dreams for social justice done? What if we got our whole bucket list checked off? Where would we be? Would we be satisfied? No. Because it is epidemic in human society to keep adding to the list. Oh, we have these rights. Well, I want these rights. Well, I need to add these and, and this level of oppression. And so we start to micromanage the level of social justice we're trying to get. And then in our bucket list, we just oh, finally went to the Greek islands. <clears throat> Haven't been to Sicily yet. Okay. Go to Sicily. Great. Haven't seen Mumford and Sons in Munich yet. Okay. Add that. And what happens? We just keep adding and adding and adding. I had a daughter, and I had a small bucket list for her. She simply had to grow up to be a really strong Christian. She had to go to Princeton, be first to third in her class, and get some job somewhere up in, you know, either Bay Street or Wall Street or somewhere like that. It's just a small little bucket list I had for her. She needed to know three to five languages, play two to three instruments because she's my daughter. You know what happens when you have a bucket list? The world disappoints you. Or... You keep growing it. Why? Because this world isn't made to satisfy you. The gospel says you are made by God in the image of God for God to satisfy. If you're made in the image of God, you cannot be satisfied by this world because your desires are infinite and only an infinite God can satisfy those desires. Now listen to the hope the gospel provides based on the unshakable promises of an unbounded, infinite, unstoppable God. Firstly, the hope to which he has called you includes the hope of guiltlessness. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1, that God is going to make you in a way that your heart has always hoped for. He says here in verse 4, first major paragraph, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Complete and utter holiness. That means the absence of anything morally or ethically wrong. Beautiful picture. Wouldn't you like to be so filled with love and goodness that you never do anything selfish? I would. Let's keep going. The hope for a transformed life, both physical and the world around me. Next verse. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, the hope of future adoption. In Romans chapter 8, it says the creation, but not only the creation, but we ourselves having the first fruits of God's spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, we were saved. We hope that this bod that we have is going to get a better one. I mean, I, some of you may think you're pretty happy with your bod. You think you've got a glorious bod. <laughs> well, compared to me, maybe, yeah. Compared to what you're going to get if you're a Christian, you'd be weeping now. Enjoy when you see what you're going to get. 
this world that we find so comfortable and enjoyable, wait till you see the world waiting for you, where there's no sin, no oppression, no injustice, no inequality, no hatred, no tears, no pain, no tsunamis, no hurricanes, no death, no disease, no decay, no lines. Okay, now if you're Asian, you don't get lines till you're 65, so you don't get it, most of you. But the rest of us, we get it. We are feeling the pain. You will too. And you will long for the day when there is no de decay, no death, no disease. The hope of future adoption. The hope of eternal future glory. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You won't just get perfection. You will get endless, eternal perfection. That's the gospel hope. And you will get to see God in all of his glory. The blessed hope, Titus 2.13, we await for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before, but think of the most magnificent vista you have ever laid eyes on. Now triple it in beauty. Now quadruple it again in beauty. Now multiply it by 100 million in beauty such that you wouldn't know what to do with that beauty and it will pale in comparison with the beauty you will encounter when you see God. Now I submit to you, let's compare the two narratives and their hopes. Our present cultural narrative, this life is all you've got. Squeeze every pleasure, every experience, every bit of status and meaning and happiness you can out of the 90 or so years you are going to live and try and get as much justice as you can because this is all there is or compare it with what I've just described. I submit to you, if you are here and you are not yet a Christian, you may not yet believe in the ridiculous beauty of what I've described, but wouldn't it be amazing if it were true? Maybe it is. It's an unshakable hope. And so when we pray, when we pray, we leave the world of here and now, the mad scramble for bucket lists, and social justice activism and trying to wangle something out of this world as fast as I can. And we enter into this other world, the real world that God has created, the real world that God has waiting for you. You see, God, who has the time in the palm of his hand, will enter you into a world beyond time, a world of eternal truth, justice, and an eternal, unstoppable promise that one day an eternal rest from all of this striving will be yours. When you pray, you raise your eyes and your soul from the temporal and the temporary to the eternal and the unchanging destiny that God has promised and the eternal world ruled and made by God. Your hope is assured this will one day be yours. And that hope, that unbreakable hope, that unshakable hope, that unstoppable hope anchors you when you're anxious, consoles you in your pain, lifts you in your discouragement, delights you 
in your soul gives courage to your fear and gives you endurance to enter into this dark, broken world and not have to scramble to wring out of it what you need because what you need is already stored up for you so you could come to the world and say, what do you need? Because I'm ready to give. When you pray, you commune with a God who gives you a hope that cannot be shaken, which frees you to serve rather than to grab. A hope that cannot be shaken. Secondly, a love that cannot be imagined. Next line, after the hope to which he has called you, he says something equally brief. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, we need to stop for just a moment here, and I want to focus my discussion right now to Christians. There are many of us who are here who are not Christian and many of us here who are. But most Christians, if you're like me, as you mature in your faith, you you try and grow from a more self-centered Christianity to a more God-centered Christianity where you stop asking, God, can you get my will done? And you start saying, God, can I do your will? And that's beautiful. We said that very clearly these last couple weeks. The essential truth is that God is the center of the universe. God is, and he deserves to be central in our lives. But here, Paul, probably the most God-centered theologian in history, in my opinion, goes deep into the heart of God and finds something utterly stunning. You've been trying to make God your inheritance. And these verses say, God's been trying to make you his. Let me say that again because many Christians miss this. God finds us to be his treasure, to be his inheritance. The saints are his joy. The saints are beautiful in his eyes. The saints are someone he has been trying to consummate a marriage with from the beginning of time and beyond time. Because the gospel says, That the God has been pursuing you, pursuing me, pursuing all of us with a relentless, special, sacrificial love like a husband for a bride. And let me prove it to you. Let me show you first how long God has been chasing us. And then let me show you how deep he's been chasing us. And then let me let you show, see how wide is his love for us. How long has God been chasing us? Started way back at the beginning of creation. God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden, and he said, listen to me. But the garden they were to live in was a beautiful garden. It's kind of like the the place you might create for your spouse, except it wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was for Adam and Eve and God, because God wanted to live in intimate communion with all of humanity. And then in in Genesis 2, when when God starts to parade these animals in front of Adam, two by two, male and female, so Adam can realize, wait a minute, I'm male, there's no female, what's what's wrong with me? I feel alone, and God does that, and he says, I will make a hazer that is fit for you. Hazer is the Hebrew word, I'll make a helpmate, I'll make a partner for you. Except who's acting as the hazer in that moment? It's God himself bringing the animals and helping Adam to not be lonely. Again, God's acting almost like a bridegroom to his bride. But it gets even more focused and more revealed. In Genesis chapter 17, after humanity has rebelled against God and kicked themselves out of the garden, God makes a people for himself. Now listen, 
to what he says. I will establish my covenant, Abraham, between me and you and your offspring after you. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then he says back to them, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Covenant language. I will do this for you. I will be yours. Now you be mine. What does that remind you of? I've done 14 weddings. I know what it reminds me of. Those are wedding vows. And he keeps repeating these wedding vows throughout his history with the Israelite people. Take a look at the Shema. When, when Israel finally is about to go into the land, this is what God says as he reaffirms his covenant with his people. Hear, O, Lord, is, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words I command will be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Be my spouse. And when Israel turned to other gods and betrayed God for the, the, the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals, to Moloch, listen to the language of God. It's the language of a lover betrayed. Hosea 2, to plead with your mother. He means Israel. Plead, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And then in verse 7 of Hosea 2, she will pursue other lovers but not overtake them. She will seek them but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. It's the language of a spouse betrayed. God has always had a lover's desire to be the bridegroom of his people, of the people he made in his image. He kept pursuing us even when we left him. In in justice, he disciplined his people, but in love, he pursues them. And he has been since the beginning and before time. And if you doubt this, let's look now at the depth of God's love. Because in the fullness of time, God pursued us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one, came down. And Jesus did something. He died on the cross, and we're wondering what that means. What is its significance? And Paul, in talking to husbands and talking about their marriage relationship with their wives, says these stunning words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. Do you hear this? God has always loved the church. That's the length. He's always loved us. But look how deep is his love. He sent his son to die. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that for a minute. Who did he die for? You and me. What are we like? We're like the uh, rest of the people in the Bible. We wander away from God. We make other things more central to our life, our careers, our kids, our relationships, our status, our beauty. And they become the functional center of our lives. Romans 3 put it well, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who who understands, no one seeks for God. 
I do, on average, at least 10 weddings a year, and I can tell you that at every wedding, the bride looks radiant, ravishing, beautiful. She's way out of the league of that, you know, that, that slug in a rented tux. It's like it's embarrassing. No offense to all you guys who I married this year. You looked fine. No, you didn't. They looked radiant. You, they looked radiant. It's my one joke. But the depth of God's love is shown in this, that we as the bride aren't radiant to him. We're not beautiful. We're ugly. We're selfish. And yet he dies for us. And yet he comes for us. That's the depth of God's love. Now think of who came for us. It was the peerless, sinless, perfect, one against whom we had committed spiritual adultery, says the Bible, who came for us. It was God himself, the one by whom all things were created, says Colossians 1, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's the one whom Isaiah says is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, whose reign is forever and ever and whose dominion has no end. It's Jesus Christ, God himself, the eternal king who came. And look what he did. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, the eternally worthy, beautiful, glorious Son of God, paid the infinite price, the necessary price for our guilt and our wrong and our sin by dying on the cross so we could become his infinitely beloved bride, the inheritance of generations, and God could consummate his marriage. Christ didn't just die for us. He's coming back to claim us as his own bride and bring us to dinner because Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. God is going to take us out of this world and remake the world, the cosmos, the universe for us, and then he's going to bring us back in and we're going to be like him. He's going to consummate this marriage to his bride. And prayer, prayer invites us into the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love. It's so long. He's been planning it since before the dawn of the earth. It's so deep. It took the death of his son, and it's so wide. It's going to change the whole world. We're going to inherit a perfect world, a beautiful, taintless, sinless world. And when you pray, you go out of this world, it's brokenness, it's sadness, it's transitoriness, it's fleetingness, it's futility. And you enter into that world, that world of unimaginable love. Love in our world is usually so fickle. Love at our work is so conditional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Love in our relationships is so complicated. We hurt people without even knowing it. They hurt us without them knowing it. But this is an unimaginable love. 
because his gospel says, while you were yet sinners, deeply wronged, I came for you to make you my beloved, and I put all your guilt and ugliness upon my son. You see, when we pray the way the gospel calls us to, reading the Bible as the love story of God for his eternal beloved bride, we enter into a place where hope becomes unstoppable and love becomes unimaginable. Fear becomes confidence. Anxiety becomes rest. And power becomes ours. And we'll talk about that power next week. But this week, I want to say to this, if you are here and you are investigating the gospel, Christianity, I want you to just ask this question. What is the final anchor for my hope? And does this world satisfy my deepest hope? Because I think if you're honest and self-reflective enough, you will say, this world has never met the depths of my desires. I can't even think as, and hope as deeply as I want to. I need to manage my disappointment. And if you're there, I need to ask you, maybe the intensity of your desires is a sign that you were not made to be satisfied by this world, but by an infinite God who loves you. If you're here and you're a Christian, I ask you, enter into the world of unstoppable hope and unimaginable love by going from this world to the world of God in prayer. Commune with Him, and you will experience a transforming, unimaginable love, and you will be anchored by an unstoppable hope, and you will be changed. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace and I pray that you would change us now by allowing us to enter into communion with you. That is the purpose of prayer, that we may be changed by the unstoppability of this hope and we may be changed by the unimaginable depth and height and breadth and length of your love for us. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We have time for a couple of questions, and then we are going to go uh, to, the, to, to uh, communion or the, the Lord's table. Uh, what should be the role of Christians then in social activism causes? It should be intense, in my opinion. Social activism is a great thing. We are called to serve, and particularly to serve the marginalized and the broken. But it's the level of frustration and anger when justice is not fully done that the Christian is called not to go to. Because the Christian understands that full justice just has never been accomplished on this earth, never in any era of history, and it won't now. And so a true gospel realize, realism understands this world just can't produce full, infinite, satisfying justice. It will work towards proximate justice as best it can. And it will work as hard or harder than anybody. But it won't put its final hope in that justice. Great question. 
Last week you said something like God's kingdom in Jesus has come, but it's incomplete. How much of the future glory is possible now before death for a Christian? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, there might be 50,000 books written in the various languages of Christianity on that specific issue. That is an unbelievably great question. If you think I can answer it in 30 seconds, you are one, going to be one disappointed person. That's a great question. Um, I don't have an answer for you. I'll tell you that the debate rages. Um, and I'll tell you that you see it in the New Testament and you see it today. In the New Testament, you see the Galatians thinking the gospel had hardly transformed you at all and you still needed to follow the Jewish law to have any relationship with God. The gospel hadn't broken it because Christ hadn't fully satisfied it on your behalf. You still had to do it. But then you saw the Corinthians thinking the resurrection from the dead had already happened and all kinds of social ethics and stuff that, that used to exist didn't. So we're completely in this powerful new era. You see it there. You see it today. You see it today in the various forms of uh, Christian denominations where some denominations and ours would probably be one of them that, that speaks so highly of this, the continued struggle that we often forget the power of God to change us and the power of God to have victory. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. And then you have some other denominations, particularly of the charismatic variety, that so trumpet the power of God right now that they sometimes overestimate that power. And so to find the perfect balance, we've never found it in the history of the church, and I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer that perfectly. I can only say that is the issue that has beleaguered and befuddled Christianity since the beginning and continues to this day. And so we need to always pray for humility because we're never quite going to get right. How much is reserved for then and how much is available to us now? I'll take a much bigger shot at it next week, though, because we're going to talk about the power. This week, I'm going to focus on the unstoppable hope and the unimaginable love that have come through Jesus. Because on the night that we call the Last Supper, the last meal Jesus had with his disciples, he broke bread with them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. By which he meant he was going to allow himself to die that we might live with God in communion forever. A little while later he held up a cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And he told of his people to drink of his cup and to eat of this bread regularly to remind yourselves of the greatness of the unimaginable love of God for you, that you may stop living in the world of frantic running after bucket lists and, and justice in this lifetime and enter the world of God's grace where justice has been poured out on Jesus. Justice will come back in Jesus, but grace will be shed and rest will be given. So I'm going to pray now, and if you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you to pass the elements by and read the prayers in the bulletin. But if you are a baptized believer, this feast is for you. This is not just for people who are members of Grace Toronto, but for all of God's uh, people. So if you're a baptized believer, this table is open for you. The uh, bread is that it will be passed as gluten-free, and the wine is darker than the grape juice. After I've prayed, the table will be open, and you are welcome to it. Let us feast on his grace. Father, I thank you that you give us ordinary food, but you give, give it extraordinary meaning 
and power. And I pray that today we would realize how unstoppable is your love and how unimaginable is your grace and how sure is your hope. We love you and we praise you. Help us to enter your world and leave ours through prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Table's open.